I invite you to join me in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for this time that we can be in your word. We pray that you would meet us here, meet us in the word, your word. Speak to us clearly, Father, that we might be the people you have called us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Laura was on a FaceTime call with some friends in Massachusetts yesterday, and the weather there was slightly different than the weather here. And one thing I loved when we lived in Massachusetts was that you were never too far away from a snowstorm. I came to the conclusion after a while that there were kind of two seasons. There was July and there was winter. And uh, I can remember vividly being at uh, one of my stepson Matthew's baseball games. It was the month of May, and I have never been so cold in my entire life. And not to, to uh, take too much away from that experience, though, but we went to a football game in the fall that he was not playing in because he had an injured leg. But we went anyway as good supportive parents to not watch him play in a town called Duxbury, which was right on this lake. And I got to tell you, I have parts of me that were frozen that has still not thawed out. So when I was younger, living in Massachusetts in a town in the western part of the state, uh, some friends and I, and I would get together after a snowstorm. And where we lived, the block where we lived, was adjacent to kind of a main street in the town. And regularly, uh, trucks, semi-trailers would drive down the street to get the places they had to go. So picture this. A group of teenage boys, piles of snow, giant trucks going by. So we couldn't resist. I mean, who could resist packing together some snowballs and smacking the sides of those trucks as they went by? We had absolute confidence that none of those semi-trailer truck drivers would stop and try and chase us down. One day, however, we made a tactical blunder. A Mustang came down the street. And yes, we were there with our snowballs in hand, and we pelted this Mustang with more snowballs than you've ever seen in your life. This guy slammed on his brakes, screeched to a sliding halt, and started chasing us up the street. We thought, ah, we'll get into the alley. He won't chase us there. No, we got into the alley, and it was like one of those action movies. Suddenly, the car is chasing us down the alley. We finally got away from him by ducking and jumping over a fence into a yard and hunkering down. Snow. I'm not a real fan of snow. I was a fan of snow when I snowboarded back in my younger days, but not so much anymore. But here's an interesting thing to me about snowflakes. No two snowflakes have ever been observed that are alike, right? You've heard this, right? Each snowflake has a particularly uh, shaped, uh, is particularly shaped, and there's this infinite variety of snowflakes. They're all made of the same material. The essence of the snowflake is the same, but they're very, very individual. They're very, very personally sculpted. And individually, I mean, one snowflake doesn't have much effect, right? It's going to hit the ground. It's probably going to melt. But if a bunch of them fall on top of each other and stack up, they've got to be either moved out of the way or slid over and packed together intentionally They can be made into snowballs for throwing. I do not recommend throwing at Mustangs. Snowballs 
packed together snow can make a difference. Snowmen, snow women, snow children, snow, well, you get it, right? But though I don't like snow very much, I think there's some things we can learn from snow that applies to the workings of the body of Christ, the family of God, the church. And so Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts, he's going to record this difference that we can make in his account of the work of the Holy Spirit moving the Gospel from Jerusalem to Rome. That's what the book of Acts is all about. The Gospel's origination in Jerusalem and moving across the ancient empire of Rome to the city of Rome. So here, we're going to turn to the book of Acts this morning, chapter 4. And we are going to read from verses 32 down to verse 37. Um, iPhone, iPad apps, uh, on, the, on the website, the Bible passage translation is there. If you're here this morning, it's going to be up on the screen. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. I have in my hand the key to my study, which I'm now going to hand to Pastor Laura, because, sweetheart, there's a book on my desk, What's So Amazing About Grace, that I needed to bring with me this morning, and I didn't. Forgetfulness. It's a thing. Well, in verse 32, first of all, we're given this picture of a, of a spirit-given reality. And what is that reality? It's unity. These folks, at this initial expression of the, of the Holy Spirit descending, are described as being one in heart and mind in verse 32. This is a picture of extraordinary unity. Not unanimity, but a common Savior, a common Lord, and common submission to Him. And this oneness of heart and mind provides the basis for the common mission, for the common vision, for the common methods they're going to undertake as they pursue God's work together. These weren't, thank you very much, these weren't um, identical people. They're not clones of each other. There's not, they're not identical personalities. They don't have identical backgrounds. In fact, verse 4, uh, excuse me, 34 tells us they're, uh, verse 4, excuse me, in this chapter, back before we started reading, tells us there were at least 5,000 of these people together, one in heart and mind. This is not something that's manufactured by people. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says, we are all baptized by one spirit into one body. Do you get it? This unity thing is something God creates. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, there is one body and one spirit. This God-created reality is something that he puts together, not you and me. But what happens then is, this God-created reality, this idea of unity, Jesus hands it to us and says in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, you all, you need to 
To, to keep this thing together, you need to maintain it. It's a gift that's given to us, that we're told to, 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 to be good stewards of. Several years ago, um, the postal worker came by uh, where I was living and uh, delivered me a torn-up envelope that had been wrapped in plastic with a sticker on it that said, Sorry, damaged in handling. Well, the body of Christ, the fellowship of believers together, should never be damaged in handling. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 again says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Folks, I believe that God can still do some powerful things through First Congregational Church of Emporia, Kansas, and the resources with which he has entrusted us. God-sized things. Things that will be exciting to be in on and worth this every effort thing that Paul talks about. Now listen to me clearly. It may not look like what has been before. In fact, it may look dramatically different than what has been before. And I know even as I say those words, some of you, panic strikes you to the very heart of your being. But if we're going to be in on stuff with God, who is at work to this very day, then we need to make sure we're in on His work and not on our preferences. And I have a notice across the, the time that I've pastored that, uh, and have been in bodies of Christ around the world now that uh, people in church are weird. Now sometimes people get upset when I say that people in church are weird. But we all have our own weirdnesses about us. If you don't want to think of yourself as weird, that's okay. You can think of yourself as a flake with your individuality. And what happens in the kingdom of God? God takes all of us flakes and he packs us together into this thing he calls the church, the family of God, the body of Christ. And when he does that, at least back in this passage in the book of Acts, when he does this, this packed together, united body is characterized by a few things. The first thing it's characterized by is, in verse 32, it's compassion. Now this is, just not, this is not just feeling sorry for people. One time on a visit to Colorado with our grandkids and, oh yeah, their parents, uh, hanging out, we went to a Red Robin restaurant to have lunch. This was back in the day when, you know, restaurants weren't filled with things in the air. And uh, outside this Red Robin restaurant, in the parking lot, there was a van. And outside the van was a, I thought it was a mom and dad and at least three kids. I couldn't tell because they were moving a lot. If there were more than three or less than three, these kids were highly mobile. And they were sitting there, clearly distraught. And so I had my grandson Cooper with me. And we walked over to them. I said, are you guys okay? And uh, they said, no, no, we're kind of stuck. Our, our van is broken down. And honestly, the dad takes me off to the side because now he's embarrassed in front of his family. He says, you know what? I haven't been able to feed my family for two days. So with Cooper by my side, we walked over to the Red Robin restaurant. We walked in. We bought enough gift cards so that they could feed themselves that day and the next day. And we brought them back out. And my grandson, Cooper, of course, he didn't pay for the gift cards, but he wanted to hand the gift cards off to the dad. And so he did. And I created a monster. 
Because then from that moment on till now, and this was a couple, three years ago, every time we're anywhere and we see somebody that looks like they need help, he looks at me and says, Gramps, aren't we going to help them out? And so I can't tell you how many gift cards we bought because we built this habit into this young, this little boy who's growing into this young man, this, this heart of compassion. And I'll confess to you, sometimes when I engage in this stuff, I do it with a bit of a grumpy attitude. But it, it's the right thing to do. We, you and I, we are called to be people who have broken hearts over the needs of others. Broken hearts, but healthy feet and healthy hands. In this passage, there were two kinds of acts of compassion. There was the day-to-day stuff in verse 32, but... Then there were extraordinary special needs that were met in verse 34. They made sure, look at the phrase, no one was needy. You see, this kind of compassion, this active compassion became possible because people saw themselves as stewards of possessions and not owners of possessions. These folks realized that they had personal possessions but not exclusively private possessions. And a guy shows up here in Acts chapter 4 who becomes a model of servanthood throughout the book of Acts. His name is Barnabas. His name means son of encouragement. What did he do in this passage? He had a field. He had a spare field. I don't know why people have spare fields, but he had a spare field apparently. And he sold it and he brought the money and he laid it at the feet of the apostles. He's kind of like exhibit a in kind of a kind of a uh, Christian court case, Barnabas is introduced, and throughout the first half of the book of Acts, he's a helper, mediator, encourager. Here he is. Here he is, an example of that compassion. His heart breaks for the needs of others, but he has healthy feet and a generous heart. In fact, his very nickname helps us to see the refreshing nature of compassion. This is supposed to be a spiritual reality in the body of Christ. Practical caring in the family of God. And not just for those of us who happen to park ourselves in the pews on a Sunday morning. Compassion. Real compassion. And also, uh, the local body of Christ, this unity thing, is characterized by, in verse 33, a continual testimony about Jesus. And not timid or or tentative testimony either, but with the power of the Spirit of God. The resurrection was real to these people, immediately real to these people in the early church. And sometimes I wonder, and I know in my own life, I wonder, is the resurrection as real to me? Easter, we celebrated a little differently this year. We were all home. Pastor Laura and I shared over the iPad from our study at home. But it was still Easter. It was still the day we paused to remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's still the day that empowers us as we look back on what God did in Jesus. The God who raised Jesus from the dead can raise up solutions to our problems. So why is testimony emphasized in this passage? Because these people could talk with integrity about how Jesus changes lives. 
Their lives were shown to be changed by the acts of compassion in which they engaged. Yes, talking about Jesus is an absolute biblical priority, but coupled with that, that conversation is action. Um, in a previous church, in a previous study, I used to have a Three Stooges poster on my wall. And I don't know if you've seen this picture or not from the Three Stooges days. Um, they were all dressed in academic regalia. They had graduation gowns, caps and gowns on. And they were all kind of holding their diplomas and looking towards the future. And the caption said, what do we do now? And sometimes I think as we see these disciples in the, in the, in the Bible, it, they remind me. It's like the Twelve Stooges. But eleven of the twelve were changed from stooges to stars. Men who were glowing with the light of Christ in their lives. Testimony. And coupled with the first thing, this local body of Christ, the church was also characterized, verses 34 and 35, by generosity. Generosity. We talked about Barnabas and his lavish gift. So, we take those things, we recognize that the characteristics of this notion of unity, God's people together, and we see in this passage some immediate effects of that unity. Verse 33, much grace was upon them all. Grace. Not just something we say casually before dinner. Not just an obligatory checklist item when we gather for a meal. Grace is kind of the summary word for all that God has done for us in Christ. We get to inhabit a place called grace. We get to breathe grace, breathe it in and breathe it out as we be the people of God that he has called us to be. And in the New Testament, there are a lot of nuances to this word grace. But here, here there's at least a couple of them. Because we enjoy God's favor, which grace is, grace is unearned, unmerited favor. Because we enjoy God's favor, we can be people who live graciously, accepting one another, just as God in Christ accepted you. People who look for and affirm the good. Listen to me. I am so stinking tired of social media that I watch it every day. And as I do that, I recognize there are a lot of experts in the world on bad stuff. Or a lot of people who think they are experts on stuff, who express their expertise in really hurtful and painful ways. That's not grace. That shouldn't characterize Christians. When I see a Christian who tweets something or posts something on Instagram or posts something on Facebook or WhatsApp or whatever particular social media avenue they are pursuing, when I see a Christian post something that's just incredibly hurtful and stupid, I want to reply back at them. I want to retweet and tweet back at them. That was incredibly hurtful and stupid. But I recognize that if I do that, I'm being incredibly hurtful and stupid. It's like this giant echo chamber of pain. And if believers are in any chamber, echo or not, social media or otherwise, we need to be people who look like Jesus, who live out grace, who breathe it in and breathe it out. Now, I'm going to beg your indulgence this morning. 
because I did ask Pastor Laura to go get this book. I want to read to you a couple, three pages. It's got a story in it. And I read this story again the other day, and I've commended this book to you before. What's so amazing about grace? Go get it. Read it. And, but I reread this story the other day, and I could not get through it without tears watering my eyes such that I couldn't read the pages. Listen. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirts. Length of her skirts. They ground her a few times, and she seethes inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan she has mentally rehearsed scores of times. She runs away. She's visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the, the Tigers play. Because newspapers in the Traverse City report in lurid detail the gangs, the drugs, and the violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that it is probably the last place her parents will look for her. California, maybe, or Florida, but not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. Since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally, she thinks about the folks back home, but their lives now seem so boring and provincial that she can hardly believe she grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have You Seen This Child? But by now she has blonde hair, and with all the makeup and body-piercing jewelry she wears, nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways, and nobody squeals in Detroit. After a year, the first sallow signs of illness, illness appear, and it amazes her how fast her boss turns mean. These days we can't mess around, he growls, and before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay much, and all the money she goes, she gets goes to support her habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the big department stores. Sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes, her cough worsens. One night, as she lies awake listening for footsteps, all of a sudden, everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspaper as she's piled on top of her like a coat. Something jolts a synapse of memory and a single image fills her mind. Of May in Traverse City, when a million cherry trees bloom at once with her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of trees in chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave, she says to herself. And pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do now. She's sobbing and she wants in a flash, and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she just wants to go home. 
Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and it'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for a bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. And during that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and miss the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or so until she could talk to them? And even if they are home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech that she's preparing for her dad. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, <clears throat> her throat tightening even as she rehearses them, because <clears throat> she hasn't apologized to anybody in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the pavement, rubbed worn by thousands of tires, and the asphalt stream steams. She's forgotten how dark it gets at night out here. A deer darts across the road and the bus swerves. Every so often a billboard, a sign posting the mileage to Traverse City. Oh, God. When the bus finally rolls into the station, as air brakes hissing in protest, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, that's all we have here. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair, and licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice if they're there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. Not one <clears throat> of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees. There, in the concrete walls and plastic chairs bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters. and great aunts and uncles and cousins. <clears throat> and a grandmother and a great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing <clears throat> goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers. And taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that says, Welcome home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She stares out through the tears, quivering in her eyes like hot mercury, mercury, and begins to memorize speech. Dad, I'm sorry, I know. He interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you. Heaven. Yancey says that what's so amazing about grace is that we hardly ever see it in real life. How do we do this grace thing? We could take some time to study in the Bible the word encouragement or encourage. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Hebrews 3.13, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Encourage. But there's a, even a broader and a more widespread effect of unity. The broader effect of unity is it's an answer to Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. In the book of John, Jesus says, it's a testimony to the world. But if you and I are living lives characterized by grace, it's a testimony to Lyon County. There are two basic kinds of literature, right? Fiction and nonfiction. People want to know that the Bible is nonfiction, that the record is true. And how do they know these things? Certainly by us sharing with them the words, but the preached word is confirmed by what they see along the way in you and me as we are living lives of grace. Jesus is real, folks. He really came. He really died for our sins. He really rose again. He really does reign at the right hand of the Father. He really does intercede for us at the Father's right hand. God's love is real. How do we know? Because Jesus came to meet us and solve the sin problem that you and I are plagued with. And God gives us incredible things in Christ. New life, new love, new hope, new sense of purpose. But one of the most incredible things is this thing he calls unity in the body of Christ. A spirit-given gift that you and I show by compassion. Broken hearts with healthy feet in action to meet real needs. When we do that, we show Lyon County and beyond, beyond that Jesus is real. So this morning, here's the question. What kind of flake are you? Melting by yourself? Stacked up and slippery and no good? Or packed together to make a difference? One in heart.